Doing the impossible is not something you make happen. It's something that you allow to happen. After conducting over 10,000 personal and group coaching sessions over the last decade, author and personal coach Jason Dries has unlocked the simple yet effective formula to accept and create success in your life on the most basic, instinctive level. In his latest book, Do the Impossible, Jason gives readers access to the same life-changing principles he provides in his personal coaching sessions. Ready to embrace success as a state of being? In this exclusive listener offer, get your copy of Do the Impossible for 50% off from the publishers at Bigger Pockets. To get your copy of Do the Impossible for 50% off any format, go to www.biggerpockets.com impossible50. That's 50% off any format, www.biggerpockets.com impossible50. You know, I, I love you, but I don't believe that people are brands. And um, that may be our, our greatest ideological clash. Okay. Um, well, a brand, I, I define a brand as a, set, as a set of values. And the whole, by the way, you just destroyed the premise of the show because the intro to the show is every person, <laughs> every celebrity, every athlete, every institution, every religion, every movement, every political party is a brand. So you just completely wiped out the thesis of the show. Welcome to Our Brand with Donnie Deutsch. And we have a very special episode of On Brand, a holiday edition, best of. Uh, and what we've done, we've taken some of our favorite guests and some of the most kind of like influential things that were said, inspirational things that were said, nuggets that you, we really want to show you again. We go from everybody from Joe Scarborough to Al Sharpton to Michael Cohn to Stevie Van Zandt to Nicole Wallace. It's just a real array and others that we kind of give you slices of things that they said that are either going to make you laugh, make you cry, make you think. Um, but there's some of the more, what I'll just call, important, iconic moments on our show. And we've had so many of them. And I think you're really, really going to enjoy it. And, and it's, it's great listening if you're sitting on a beach somewhere. I know everybody's, not everybody's on vacation, but it's it's a nice way to kind of just catch up and review the past year through the eyes of our show, which you know what we do here. And I wanted to just give everybody my thoughts for the coming year. Um, look, interesting times we live in, as they always are. Um, I, we are living right now in a very divided country. Uh, that is more than anything. Our biggest problem is that we are no longer the United States of America. We are, uh, a group of states and we are really two Americas right now. And that has tremendous impact on everything we're going and everything we're doing. I though I'm an optimist and I believe that the, the right, uh, transformational leaders, I'm not quite sure that who they are in either party right now, but I think the right leaders can unite us? Because I do think in the end, the irony of this whole thing and the media causes it is that I think most of us agree on 70 or 80% of things. But unfortunately, the media, which I'm part of, just kind of gloms onto the, 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 the two polar axes and, you know, feed us uh, the divisiveness. And in reality, I do think we are more a lot alike than dislike. And I think we all, most people want the same thing. They want a better life for their kids. They want safety. Uh, they want love, uh, they want fairness. Now, I know we don't always see that in the news, but I believe Republicans, Democrats, independents, everything, uh, gay, straight, black, white, tall, short, whatever it is, I do think we are all more connected in the souls than we're not connected. So on that note, I hope everybody has a great, wonderful, wonderful holiday season. And I think you're gonna really, really enjoy our, uh, our, our, our best of. I wanna talk about Canva, C-A-N-V-A. Making content is an essential part of what I do to keep the show going, but it's not always been a seamless creative process. 
Canva Pro is a design platform that empowers you to create and share stunning content in just a few clicks. Whatever you're doing, whether you're doing a show like mine, creating anything, any kind of content, Canva really is going to help you make it better. Designing with Canva Pro is amazingly fast and fun. Choose from thousands of templates that are easy to customize or start from scratch. Canva Pro has endless premium fonts, photos, videos, and so much more that add personal and edge to whatever you're designing. So whatever you're doing, whatever kind of presentation you're making, whatever content you're making, whatever, they've got photos, they've got fonts, they've got things, they got, they're going to, all the bells and whistles are going to help you make it better. Designing together has never been easier. Sharing, editing, and commenting in real time. Canva Pro helps you stay organized on the same page and the top of team projects. No more misplaced files or tedious back and forth. With Canva Pro's content planner, you'll save time planning, creating, and posting social media content too. Pause schedule posts and edit them at any time. My favorite Canva Pro feature is probably that, the content planner. It's amazing. Design like a pro with Canva. Canva Pro. Right now, you can get a free 45-day extended trial when you use my promo code. Just go to canva.me slash Donnie to get your free 45-day extended trial. That's Canva, C-A-N-V-A dot me, M-E slash Donnie, canva.me slash Donnie. Power blackouts. They happen every year. But guess what, blackouts? You've met your match. Say hello to Goal Zero, the leader in affordable home power backup systems and solar generators. Goal Zero's generators power your fridge, freezer, lights, Wi-Fi, TV, and more with clean power. Their home backup systems, like the Yeti 3000X, have no fuel, no fumes, no noise, and no maintenance. Just good, clean energy that keeps your home up and running. They offer a range of products and affordable price points, from power stations that can provide a half day's worth of power, to solar generators and home backup systems that can keep you powered for one, two, or three days. Plus, they're all portable, so you can take your power with you when you go camping, tailgating, and more. So yeah, take that, blackouts. Our power is here to stay. Have peace of mind when blackouts hit. Go to GoalZero.com to learn more. I remember a bunch of years ago, somebody from NBC brought in a, a uh, production expert who was going to come in and make the show better and do beginning montage beginnings and do this and that. And I remember like watching you wince in pain. I think that lasted for about a week because yeah. the very thing that was making it work was these jagged edges and it, no, we don't have a packaged open and, and no, I'm not doing a stand up at the beginning and whatnot. And so what's so interesting about TV executives is that, that the very thing that they, they can't understand the thing that makes something work and that it's fucking different and it's not the same. Two, yeah. Two stories on that front, just for anybody listening who might want to do a three hour TV show sometime um, without any scripts. Um, the, the first day that one of those consultants were on board, I was late. I showed up on set at like 6.02 or something like that, except I kind of was hovering out in the hall. Again, it's the sort of thing just like that first time we were on and I was going to do it, going to do it for a reason, going to have some fun with Mika. Um, and the, the, this consultant just freaked out. You're showing disrespect to your audience. How dare you do that? And I couldn't even explain that that was the shtick. Yeah. Like, the shtick is everybody thinks that it's easy. So that's the stick. You make it look easy. You make it look like, like you just walked in oh, off I'm the talking street. My pencil, yeah. Yeah. Oh wait, wait, did I wait? And then you just start talking, and that was the stick. There was a guy that 
was actually talking to uh, one of the past presidents of the network, who was one of one of the most brilliant news producers, won most awards. And they were sitting there, and he goes, "You know what the best part of that Scarborough show is? Because you know the part that I love the most because he's just absolutely shattering sort of formulaic TV." And the the news president said, "No, what's that?" He goes, "When he shows up late, <laughs> he comes on the set." And he's looking like he's just like this bumbling, I'll use the word again, oaf. That, and he just kind of plops down. And it makes him look human. It makes the show look human. It makes it, you know, it's like it's not formulaic. And so, you know, that really, you know, that really works. And, and, and sort of make, makes it work well. I can't, I had a second example. I can't remember it right we're now. Getting but, old, we're getting old. And I want to, you know, the show obviously is called On Brand. And I ask this to everybody. And I, I have some real thoughts about this, but I want to hear from you. What's the Joe Scarborough brand? I don't know. I mean, cause I think it's changed. I mean, I'm, I'm the same, same person I've always been. <laughs> I, I don't give a damn. Like I, 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 I care about what, you know, what my kids think and my family thinks and my, my friends like you think. But outside of that, I just don't care. I'm going to do what I'm going to do. I'm going to say what I'm going to say. If you asked me what my personal brand was, like, it's just like, I'm just, or actually, if you want to ask what my my strategic um, approach to my, my, my profession has been, my life has been, is I just don't put up with bullshit. I know that that sounds like kind of, hey, gunslinging, shoot from here, but I literally don't put up with bullshit. I, if I have a vision that I believe in, uh, I've said it before, I'll say it again, I will fly that plane and I will fly it straight into the side of a cliff if I have to. Uh, when I was young, I had uh, a quote from Hannibal. It said, we will either find a way or we will make one. And that's sort of been my attitude. Now, what's my brand? You'd be much better at telling me my brand because, you know, I went from loathed right-wing guy uh, on Scarborough country to, or from hothead in Congress, hothead right-wing guy, to now, uh, even though I have the same political views, now it's loathed left-wing guy uh, from Republicans who think that that I'm a Marxist, uh, did, despite the fact there's a through line well, and I'm the same that I've ever been. The I've very thing been. that you said that is, that it says, oh, it's not a brand, is what it's a brand, is that you are about incredibly strong personal convictions that, but basically that, that you, as you said, you stick to your guns and that come from what you genuinely, your gut believe is right. And that that's why, that's why you talked about that paradigm, but the secret sauce, the real secret sauce is interesting. And, and yes, there are other guys on, on, on television who speak their mind and they and, you know, have the thing that shows me what the essence of your brand, what the audience relates to is when we were going through Trump, or even, you know, January 6th, always you would say in Trump, guys, we're going to get to the other side. There's this daddy quiet. I'm not saying that glibly. There's this, you have a, you feel you sense of a responsibility is, yes, you're doing your thing, but you do feel the weight of the people you're talking to. Right. And you're, you're not just delivering the news and delivering opinion. You, and this is something I've learned from you, and I try and do it a little bit just in my guest role, is that you want to, you, ha- you know, you have a responsibility. You've got people on edge and you want to use right. your experience. You'll have to say, you know what? Yes, this is really fucked up, but let's step back. 
we're going to be okay here. And well, we, and you that, know. That, that actually has been, that's actually has been the through line, um, a through line in Congress and on TV, even though I was passionate, it was a hothead, would blow up a lot of times. I was always telling people at the end of the day, we're going to be okay. This is an amazing country. We're going to get through this. Yes, we have blind spots. Yes, we have problems. But, you know, I remember telling my mom when Bill Clinton was president, mom, we're going to be okay. (laughs) I remember telling my liberal friends in Manhattan uh, who thought that George W. Bush was Hitler, we're going to get through this. We're going to be okay. I remember when Obama got elected, me having to tell my family and friends, we're going to get through this. We're going to be okay. Two years later, I was telling my friends on the Upper West Side when the Tea Party came in, we're going to be okay. I will say the last four years is the first time I've asked myself. You've been talking to yourself, trying to talk yourself into it. I didn't say it on the air, but I've asked myself, are we going to get through this? Are we going to be okay? And I never showed that on the air. Uh, What I would do is I would go out on the air and I'd be more fierce. I mean, I did a lot of things where I was intense and I was very fierce. Uh, there were so many times I wanted to just quit the show because I hated reporting on the news on Trump. Um, and I was just like, got to do this, got to fight, got to do what little part we have. And it was a very little part, pushing back hard and telling people we're going to get to the other side of it. And it's something I still have to say. We're going to get to the other side of it. it just, and I'm still optimistic despite the fact that my church um, and my my political party, former political party, and, uh, you know, my tribe of, of conservatives have just, most of them have radically, I mean, they've lost their way. They, they are, they'll say they haven't, but you can look at what I said in 1994 and 95 and 96 and 97 and 77, I mean, 2007 and 2017, and right now, there's a straight through line. I'm still talking about small government. I'm still talking about balanced budgets. I'm still talking about federal debt. I'm still talking about pushing back on crazy spending. I'm still talking about pushing back on Russia. I'm still talking about pushing back, you know, on on autocracies. I haven't changed. I have not changed. Uh, but uh, it seems too many people in my tribe have. I think that the, the, the issue becomes how you, you know, Martin Luther King used to say, is not the thesis or the antithesis, it's the synthesis. I think it's the synthesis of the two. It is a shocking and alarming that we're still out here fighting for voting rights. And I, I write about that in Rise Up. I write about what we've got to rise up about, you know, police reform. Man can put his knee on a guy's neck nine minutes and 29 seconds and look in the camera and not flinch, not even think he could get in trouble. That is frightening. Uh, the fact that we still have disproportionate uh, in terms of the economy. Blacks are double the unemployed, the white. But at the same time, same time, we elected and reelected a black man for president who we couldn't even say his name properly for two or three months. At the same time, when we went and did George Floyd, when his family called me and Ben Crump, the lawyer called me that day, and we started marches, all of a sudden, without our organizing, 
people all over the world started marching, and many of those marches were more whites than black. When I called the big march in Washington last August 28th, we had over 200,000 people there. There was about maybe a third of the crowd, at least 50,000 whites there. And I knew the time that was unthinkable. So at the same time that we're seeing these blatant vestiges of racism, we see more people reaching out, more people doing things. And when you look at the fact that 2020 election, yes, Biden wins highest number of voters in the history of the country for a president. Yes, the second highest was Donald Trump, which means we still got that almost even balance in this country. But at the same time, the same amount of people came out in Georgia a month later. Growing up around politics, the worst thing you want is we're not going to get people out again to vote in a month. Same number came out and for the first time in history elected a Jew and a black to the U.S. Senate in Georgia on the same day. So the question becomes that you've got to be able to look at the balance and know that what you're fighting for, you're winning some. And maybe the reason you're seeing a lot of ugliness is because you're winning and it brings out some of the the vitriol and some of the biggest that's left. You keep fighting because you're winning. Well, you know, well, well put. Well, well, well put, my friend. Take me back to the day that the first time that you saw the on camera, what was the George Floyd incident and and how you just with the eulogy, how you so uh, emotionally, you know, had us all watch in silence for the same amount of time. Can you take me back just inside as you're watching that? I mean, obviously, you're, the obvious things you're feeling average. Was there any just thing, personal thing that at that moment you were feeling? Uh, we you all know, felt differently. I was in the office at National Action Network. It's the height of the pandemic. We were all like told to stay in. I would only go from my condo to the office and back home. I was doing every TV and all on FaceTime. So you got the news on all the time. And when I saw that video, it started flashing back to 30 or 40 years of, of, of police stuff I've seen. It reminded me of Eric Garner, who they had the video of him choked and sure, choked to death and him saying the same words, I can't breathe. It, it was haunting to me. 91, when I started National Action Network, the uh, first case I fought was Rodney King, who was laying on the ground being beat in L.A. And I thought about all of that. And in the middle of thinking about it, Ben Crump called. And he says, have you seen this video? I said, I just saw it 10 minutes ago on TV. He said, the family wants to talk to you. And I said, okay. He says, can you do it now? I said, right now? He said, yeah. And he connects me to Filonis, George Floyd's brother. And he said, Reverend Al, we'd love for you to get involved. You see what they did to my brother. They were in Houston. He lives in Houston. His brother was the only family member in Minneapolis. He said, would you go to Minneapolis and tell people the family wants peace because people were looting and we don't want that. And I said, yeah. And I hang up the phone and I think about it. And I said, wait a minute, how am I going to Minneapolis? The whole country shut down. And I called uh, two businessmen I know. And uh, one was Robert Smith, the uh, a black billionaire. Sure. And I said, uh, how are you traveling? And he said, what's up, Rev? And I told him. He says, you got to go to Minneapolis for that. I said, yeah. He says, I have a plane there for you in the morning. What time you want to leave? And he sent a private plane. Mm -hmm. I called Eric Garner's mother. We flew in and we did a rally and we asked people to calm down. 
When I got back in the car, headed back to the uh, airport, uh, they were telling me some people were looting at a certain place. And Donnie, I said, let's go over there and see if we can talk to the people on behalf of the family. When I went there, it was not looting. They were having a protest. And i never forget, I'm standing there getting ready to do a live shot on MSNBC. And I feel something tug on my sleeve, my suit sleeve. And I look down, and it's a young girl, maybe 11, 12 years old, white girl. And I'm ready for the blasphemy, saying, all oh, these people are disruptive. All oh, give the police a chance because I'm used to being heckled in certain situations. Mm-hmm. And I looked at her, and she put a little fist up and said, no justice, no peace. And she was marching for George Floyd. I got on that plane. I told Ms. Carr, Eric Gardner, I said, this is different. And when we came back to do the funeral, the first one in Minneapolis, I'm thinking in my head, what am I going to say? And I'm looking out at the audience, which was socially distanced. Kevin Hart is there. Uh, Tiffany Haddish is there. T.I. is there. Uh, uh, Ludacris. All our stars are sitting there and the family and about 300 people. And I get up and I had prepared in my mind because I don't speak from a manuscript uh, uh, because I started as a kid. I was preaching yeah. before I could read. Well, So I'm getting up. I had my mind. I wanted to talk about what time we were in the country. But as I looked down at that casket and thought back to what you just raised watching that video, I said, what really grabbed the country was this man's knee on George Floyd's neck. And if you grew up like many of us did, feeling we could have done better if people just let us get up, if they took their knee off our neck, that's why we related to this. So, and I went yeah. in a riff on that, which became the thing that everybody picked up. But that came to me, not only was it extemporaneous, it came as I was speaking. I did yeah. not plan to make that the theme of my speech, but it was because I'd watched everybody from a James Brown and a Michael Jackson, who I eulogized, who always felt they could have done more, but the system wouldn't let them do more because of their race. All the way down to my mother on welfare. And that's what George Floyd represented to me at that moment, is will you get your knee off our neck? We will get up and do better if you wouldn't hold us down. Well, I'll tell you what I pitched and, you know, I've never really talked about this, but you know, all the players and, you know, the business after 2016. So before election day, I was asked by, in 2016, I I spent more time um, at NBC than MSNBC. Yeah, you do it today. All right. I split my time. That's not fair. Um, But I worked on a series called In Trump They Trust, um, after the election and before the inauguration of Trump voters and sort of what they were experiencing while we were covering this election in a way that ignored their intensity and their passion for Trump. Um, And after that, I I really was sort of firmly embraced by both NBC and MSNBC. I didn't know what I wanted to do. And, you know, I started talking to to a couple networks about what I envisioned. I I would talk about that. Off, offline, yeah, yeah, you were one of my my um, concierges, most um, <laughs> consequential spiritual and professional advisors. Mm. And what I think became clear to me is that I I um, I had more questions than answers, and I wanted to listen to what everyone had to say. And so, what I pitched was that conversation at the next table that makes you shush your date or your partner because you want to hear what they're saying. And so what I wanted to achieve was just this combustion. 
the best reporters, the best ex-government people. And I, and I wanted to sort of listen to what happened around a table. And I, I pitched an anchorless table where I would kind of recede and they would be the star. And um, we launched the day before Comey was fired. And I already had this role of sort of being a wing woman to Brian Williams, who still had a breaking news anchor role. And that role really morphed. I mean, they made that official in, in my last contract negotiation. And I, I now have a, a, a chief political anchor mm-hmm. title and, and helm, as you know, all the political coverage with Brian and, and often Rachel and Joy. Um, but the show itself was really birthed out of this idea of the conversation because everywhere I went, people were talking about this moment and this, this moment in politics and what it meant and what Trump supporters saw or didn't see and what had happened to Hillary. And then it just became really fueled by the coverage of the Trump era. And I think there was this feeling that the coverage of the country would drop off after he left. And I think the opposite has happened. So my show is still, and I've talked to my bosses about this. I am as inspired editorially in some ways more now than I was during the four years of his presidency when it was just one, one, one breaking story after another. And, 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 you know, a lot of them around the Mueller probe and then a lot of them around the campaign and then a lot of them around the, 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 um, dereliction of, of, of duty around the pandemic. And then a lot of them around fanning the flames of racism. I mean, it was one crisis after another. And, and as I said at the beginning, we ignored sort of the, 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 the cauldrons underneath him. And now for me, I mean, my editorial process is still, um, you know, to read all the journalism about our politics. It's a little harder. You know, I, I, I read I read a lot of local coverage now. I read the AJC now because they've had mm-hmm. great analysis of that state's right stuff. I read the Arizona stuff about the Maricopa audit review. And I've pulled these people into our coverage. I, I, I read a lot of the Pennsylvania stuff. Um, I think these are now, you know, I talked about a three ring circus. I mean, I, I think it's now been pushed back out to the country. Um, so I, I think my, my process of news gathering is different, but the aim is the same. It was particularly hard to do this, this anchorless table during a pandemic. I've never talked so yeah. much on my show. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's also twice as long. My second hour was added while I was in the basement. I'm still in the basement. I'll take you down to the basement before we get off if you want. Um, but the theory is still there, right? I talked to the smartest people and the bluntest people about the you know stories and headlines and then the trends of the day. I don't fit into the smart category, but I definitely fit into the blunt category. You know, a little little backstory, and, and this is, um, you are a, were a stunning example to me of so many women I've come across, successful women in business, and I've written about this, and actually Mika honed into this with Know Your Value in terms of it. Most men, when they're in demand or they're, they're, they have an inflated self-worth, they're pounding the table, I want this, and I, I want to raise, and I want this bigger thing, and I want to, you know. And you, when we were talking, you were talking about the offers you were getting. I don't think you understood, I don't know, this is going to sound wrong, your own value where I kept saying to you, you can have whatever you want. You're that good. If you want eight o'clock, you can have eight o'clock if you want. And you were women and you, because the way you were brought up in business and so sometimes are not as entitled as they should be. And I don't mean entitled in the bad sense of the word. And the one thing that I was trying to do with you is that I, as, as kind of an omniscient observer, watching knew where you were and knew that you could write your own ticket. And you were almost hesitant to write your own ticket because that's just not the way you were brought up. And, that, and I, I just, I came across so many 
powerful, brilliant women like yourselves that didn't have that stupid male gene of, no, give me this. You were almost, and it, it all came your way. You didn't have to, but I found that as an interesting thing to just watch with you. Well, I would just say like, I'm still that person, but what I've learned to do is to advocate ferociously for other women. And I'll get mm-hmm. on the phone with the most senior people in my company to advocate for another woman. So I, I still, I mean, look, I think part of owning your power is acknowledging that's the hardest thing to do is still hard for me to do. And I still yeah. view this as a lottery ticket that I won and I cherish it. I never, ever, ever miss my own show. I, I have a very hard time taking time off. Yeah. Um, I still, I have an incredible team and they do more than they've ever done since the show launched because I taught third grade in, in the dining room all year. My son was home for, you know, 16 months. Um, but it is still, and, and I'm a, you know, Mika was, was one of my earliest champions and, and mentors. And I have, intellectualized everything she's written it is still very hard for me to practice any of it. Yeah. 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 I've seen it. I, what's so true is every woman that, and look, my success in business came that I realized really, nine of my 11 partners were, were women. I always found men and women, if you give me a man and a woman of the same exact talent, blah, 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 I will take the woman every time. Because if you watch a Saturday morning TV commercial, you'll, you'll get into the gist of men and women. When you watch a little girl's commercial playing with a gamer doll, they're all playing collaboratively and they're giggling. And if you watch a boy's commercial at the end, the boy goes, I won. You know, and every guy, alpha male I've managed in business is how big is their office? How big is this? Where women would come in and apologize asking for a raise. It's, now that's changing, yeah. but I love that the world has caught up to now all of a sudden, obviously, you know, women in power positions and just purely on a meritocracy in the 90s. That's what I was doing. And that was the key to my, I wrote an entire chapter in my books called The Female Superiority Doctrine. And I, I, I saw it up close and personal. And that was one of my keys to success. If I ask you a question, Chris, you have a responsibility. My responsibility every day is to blank with your show. Listen and ask the questions that I think my viewers want to have asked, even if they're uncomfortable for me. It being in the context of our conversation about women, um, ask the bluntest questions that I know they will want asked. I'm going to let you go because but before I do, I'm just going to go ask a few. What I do is I do a little lightning round on brands. And I just ask you to give one thought or one essence or one word about the brand. I'm not going to do Nicole Wallace anymore. Okay. I learned my lesson there. There's no, Nicole Wallace is, is, is not a brand. She's, 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 she's an idea. <laughs> she's a harried working mom yes. still in the basement. All right. Um, Democratic party. They've got to fight like Republicans. That's where the Lincoln project was so great. They got, they just, they had that voice. They had that thing. They had that, that saber, that, that razor at the end of the thing. They just, I, I, every time I saw Steve Schmidt and his guys putting that stuff out there and Rick Wilson, I would literally yell and applaud at the television because they got it. But you're right, I got that. Barack Obama. His greatness is still unfolding in terms of his understanding of the danger of Fox News. I was, he was obsessed with it when he was president. It did great harm to his family, their sense of security. And he was way ahead of understanding the damage they were doing to our politics. I was just going to ask you, Fox News. Yeah, I mean, Fox News, it hurts me almost as much as the Republican Party hurts me. I used to spend a lot of time on their air. I viewed them as obviously giving us benefit of the doubt when other media outlets did not. And I do not, I, I feel like there's so much latitude in cable news when you can have an opinion. I don't know why they have to um, turn into a propaganda arm of the ugliest and most insidious lies being told uh, by well, the ex-president. How, first of all, how are you doing overall? 
you know, uh, look, I'm hanging in there. Um, still three months and five days left before I'm finished with the home confinement, despite the fact that I have another set of legal documents in before the Southern District of New York uh, in order to terminate the home confinement as well as any supervised release at the bare minimum based upon my cooperation. You see, you know, a lot of people turn around and they use the term flip. Um, I didn't flip on Donald Trump. What I did is I provided truthful and accurate testimony. I cooperated with law enforcement, which is actually an obligation that we as citizens have, right? We are required to cooperate and to provide evidence and testimony if, in fact, that we're called to do that. Now, as in the system works, you could either do it voluntarily, which is what I did, or you could do it via subpoena. Now, under the Trump administration, you probably remember um, there was uh, a multitude of people who chose to ignore the subpoenas. I chose not to. I felt it was my obligation and duty not just to my family, but to the country. Well, Michael, Michael let me start with the, the, the big question you always get asked, and you and I have talked about this in great detail, is that you did, but you did when you got in trouble. And and so the 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 kind of rub in the whole thing is, okay, well, he, and this is what I want you to comment on, okay, you know, he saw God and he did the right thing, but that's only when he was backed up against the wall. Well, when else are you just supposed to walk in uh, and say, hey, you guys are potentially investigating the president. How would I have known right. what was going on unless I was called in to testify, which I was. Um, and yeah, it was pursuant to one of them was a subpoena that was uh, under the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence. Mm -hmm. But nobody had asked me to speak or to cooperate prior to um, what had happened to me. Remember, out of nowhere. And nowhere they came, they raided my home, my hotel that I was staying at, and I was not there on the lamb, two blocks, as you know, from my primary residence. Uh, I was there because we had a flood in the apartment, thanks to a neighbor leaving their window open um, during the winter. Then on top of that, they raided my law office uh, as well. And based on the information that they believe that they accumulated, um, they threatened to, you know, indict me with an 80-page indictment as well as to include my wife. And I wasn't prepared to take that risk. Do you think you Not should, with her. Do you think you should have gone to jail? No, no. But to somebody who says, well, you, you, you did break the law, you did, you did perjure yourself, you did, um, uh, you know, there was issues with your banking, there was issues with taxes. So to, okay, so, so, so then respond, I need to respond stop to those. Yeah, I'm sorry, I need to respond to, to that okay. one. Um, one of the things that I took responsibility for what I did wrong, I absolutely lied to Congress. The lie, as you know, because I had spent quite a bit of time with you during this entire yes. uh, ordeal. Yeah, I want to, for full disclosure, and, you know, Michael, I was advising Michael a lot during this. Michael's a dear friend of mine, and, and as Michael was going through this with Congress and was going through this with the U.S. government, uh, as a good friend, uh, I was spent a lot of time with Michael. Right? So, so I can't be objective about everything, but that's why I also ask you some of the tough questions in terms of that, that somebody at home is going to ask you. Which is, which is fine because without answering the tough questions, yeah. the people, people don't know the, the truth. Um, I took responsibility and I still to this day take responsibility for what I did wrong. And what I did wrong was the hush money payment 
that was made to Stormy Daniels, which, as I stated to the court and to the to Congress as well, was done at the direction of and for the benefit of Donald J. Trump. And I want people, I want your listeners to understand this. It's very important. They have to understand that I didn't sleep with Stormy Daniels. Donald Trump did. And there's a whole book written by Stormy about it as well. Um, there are a multitude of checks which demonstrate the repayment, which the Trump organization took as legal fees. I wasn't really aware that you can get your pecker pulled by a porn star and declare it as legal <laughs> fee. I mean, only the Trump organization right. can come up with, with some type of, you know, interesting, uh, you know, scenarios in which that they can defer payment that way. But I had very little, if anything, to do with the Karen McDougal matter. That was all David Pecker and AMI and Dylan Howard. But nevertheless, I was charged with it. The same thing holds true when they claim that there was misrepresentation to a bank. And my comment, as I told them, that's bullshit and you know it. I have 80% equity in my home. I had more money sitting in the bank that I was, um, that the mortgage was in than the mortgage and the HELOC combined. The HELOC, which everybody, if you don't know it, is it stands for a home equity line of credit, which is basically, just to change the way that the words are, it's a line of credit based upon your home's equity. I had literally 500 times the equity in my home than what the amount that I was borrowing. So the fact that a bank could have been in danger of some misrepresentation, it's just not true. On top of that, I have never defaulted in my life. In my life, on I've never been late so your, on a bank so, so payment. Your contention so, is your contention is that yes, uh, you lied to Congress on behalf of and the direction of Donald Trump, and that the other charges, the the tax charges, uh, are just they you don't you don't think anybody else would have gone to jail in your situation. Well, that's correct. And one of the things, and again, I'm not now saying this today on you know on brand with Donnie Deutsch, anything different sure. than if you look at the November 30th, 2018, um, Michael Cohen, it was done by my attorney, um, Petrillo, under the Petrillo sentencing memo, dated November 30th of 2018. Pages 13 through 19 spell this out exactly as I'm stating you t today. First of all, the tax evasion. Now, I will acknowledge that there was an error in the, in the taxes, but it's not tax evasion. It was a tax omission. I have never in my life been audited. I have never received a letter from the IRS. I have never in my entire life requested an extension during the time that I didn't pay 1.3 million in tax. I had paid 6 million. Nobody, nobody tax evades by paying 80%. Was there an error? Yes. Who's, whose fault? It's my contention, and I'm suing my accountant right now, my former accountant for malpractice. And so far, we're winning in the court. Even the mediator turned around the other day and said, holy shit, this is, this is it's pure negligence on your behalf because every single dollar was sitting in Capital One Bank that was located the base of the building Michael, I live let, in. Let me, let me, let me, uh, let me uh, I hear you. I mean, you and I have talked a lot about this. I want to just go to the brand thing now. Is it, does it behoove, I'm now saying what's best for you, not necessarily as far as what, what's truth, what's not truth, that your, what's the word I want to use, your, your, your stance at this point should be, 
yes, I, I lied on behalf of the president. The other stuff, uh, I, I believe, you know, was thrown in to just kind of get me, this is what the government does, and move on. Instead, that, like, there's still too much your brand, I'm talking about moving your brand forward, should be because I sat on the street with you and somebody walked by and said, you're a hero, thank you. And half the country would look at you and if they got there where they would have you killed and half, I don't mean literally, and half the country sees you as a hero. And focus on moving forward of, I made a mistake, I got involved with that. What you've said so many times, I made a mistake, I got involved with that guy, it's a cult, I did some stupid things, I'm a better man for it now and I want to spend the rest of my life doing all the right things. That the more you get into the weeds there, I know how frustrating it is for you, that it still becomes that you're the victim. And yes, you were victimized in certain things, but there was like, you, you, I'm now talking about your brand, the Michael Cohn brand, because I've seen people on the street stop you and go, thank you, thank you, thank you. And I would want you to focus going forward more on what you did, that you stood up and you, you took responsibility and that you have this whole kind of new brand in front of you now. You talked a lot, I did a lot of research for this, obviously, and you, you just talked a lot about your projects over the years and the conflict with your kids. You've got three daughters, two sons, and uh, one little one at home. Your next youngest is what, 18 or? Uh, do I yes, have that right? yeah. 18. So, She's a college. Yeah, but you, you've had kind of the struggles that so many women have had over the years that us, us stupid guys don't really have to deal with, which, which is kind of the, you know, being pulled and all that comes with that. And it's just kind of been a little bit of an, a theme for kind of your professional, personal life. Yeah. Cause you know, when I left my show, it was because my mom had died at 40 and at 39, she never reached 40. So I was about to reach 40 and uh, I wanted to be home with my kids to do all those things my mother never got to do, whether it's, you know, picking them up at school or yeah. going to their sports games, all of those little things that, you know, never take precedence when you're filming a TV show or, you know, you're in the midst of that kind of fame cycle that makes every outing about you and, and not about them. And, you know, the time for kids to sort of be narcissists are, are, is now, yeah. right? When, when, when they're little and they can think that, you know, the world is, is, all about them, you know, and it's hard to do that when everyone's saying, can I have your autograph or can I have your picture? Yeah. I, Little kids get a distorted view of who's important and why, you know? So I always wrestled with that, starting with the big success of my uh, TV show. It was sort of instantly successful overnight and it sort of changed everything in our life very quickly, you know? You, your TV show, it's, it's so interesting that your TV show in certain ways is a precursor to so many shows that kind of came afterwards in, in kind of two ways. On the one hand, you know, it was this very kind of safe, fun, you were the queen of nice, Newsweek dubbed you, and it was this kind of place where uh, misfits could come and, you know, you, you know, and it, it, and it was joyous and you were a fan. And then also some of the things you're most known for was was the stuff with Tom Selleck and some of the kind of all of a sudden political stuff would pop up. And it's been a little bit of, I think, symbolic of, I'm going to ask you about your brand, your brand these two sides to it, this kind of right. loving champion of the underdog, nice, you know, you know you're, you're my best friend. Obviously, you always played a lot of best friends in movies and things like that. But on the other hand, this kind of provocateur and very kind of political character and those kind of two rosies have existed together. 
Yeah. And it's funny that now that I'm going to be 60, I am finally at a point where I can merge those all together into one entity. You know, uh, people, when I, I remember Donnie, when I got my, uh, my talk show was a big hit, but I still had a year in my contract in Caesar's palace. So I went to Caesar's palace like three or six months after my show launched and there were little old ladies in the front and I started doing my standup and they were a god. Like, who is they this? Were, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is not the Like, what yeah. is she doing? This is not the girl we see on TV. So it really ruined my ability to do stand-up because that is a provocative art form. And that's how I sort of came up in the world, was doing that. And uh, it was sort of cut off for me for those six years that I did the show. It was like I couldn't, at that time, merge the two, you know? It was hard to imagine being able to be open about my life. And now here it is 20 years later, Ellen's been doing the show for 20 years since I stopped. And um, she's able to do that. The times have changed. The environment has changed. The access to um, different kind of ways to be in the world is available to all through the internet. You know, so I don't know. I think it's it's a time now for all of those things to come in one. It always was one person, but people found it hard to hold two opposing thoughts in their head at the same time, <laughs> yes, right? Yes, we, we So it's like you, Rosie O'Donnell is, yeah. right, she's nice on TV and she's fun and she's loving and she has some political views, you know, uh, and, and you can decide if, if you agree with them or if you don't or if they're even relevant in your mind, you know. Who cares what I think? But when people ask, I say it. And sometimes it gets me in trouble. So was there a moment, you know, you, you, your fame, your big fame came, as you said, kind of quickly. You know, you were obviously well-known, and but all of a sudden the show, and the show exploded very, very, very fast. And it was right. it was, it was a real destination and, and whatnot. Do you at that moment kind of say to yourself, hmm, I have maybe a bigger job here to do than just, you know, interview the next celebrity or this and that, that I have – because you, you do have so many things that are near and dear heart to you, and you have been an advocate in, in so many different ways. Does that just naturally happen? Does that evolve? Was there a moment where you said, oh, wait a second, I, I, can, I can do some shit with this stuff beyond just get ratings and entertain people? Yeah, you know, I think I, it did happen. That did happen for me. And I'm much more of a sprinter than a marathon runner. Like when I think of Oprah doing what, 30 years did she do? Or, yeah. you and know, e and, Ellen and now 20 years. Ellen, yeah. right. I mean, 20 years, that's a long chunk of time. And I have tremendous respect for people who are able to keep the ball in the air for that long. I couldn't do it. I was, you know, first of all, very exhausted. And I was done with doing that art form. And I felt like I had done everything I wanted to do. And I was on to a new chapter in my life, which was focusing more on my parenting and, and uh, doing documentary films with Sheila Evans over at HBO and um, having my, my own charity and, and the school in the city that I run that I've been doing for 25 years. And um, they're making a documentary on it, which I think will be wonderful to get to see the success of the children that we've had graduate through there. But um, all of those pieces have equally demanded a voice, you know, for me. And I couldn't just do one thing for the rest of my life. I knew I had to have some freedom to move around creatively and artistically and, and to allow myself to be done because the kind of life, you know, it's hard when you have children to have the kind of schedule that I did. 
it was really, really hard. And I didn't like missing the day that you bring in the cupcakes to their school. You know, I don't, I didn't like missing the little things. And, and then when my kids all, you know, my, my son was seven when I left the show. And um, I remember my goal for the first year was just picking him up from school every day. You know, I had having my, having my own driver for the last six years, you know, that was my only goal was to spend a year and getting him from school every day. You, you talked a lot how that, that particular thing, picking up your kids from school, it's a very emotional yeah. thing. Yeah. That you, I mean, because of your childhood and losing your mom and uh, that it, you almost had this kind of anxiety about, I, I can't get there too early. I can't get there too late. I just got to get there exactly. right. And you, and you, you would look at your clock at 2.20 and go, I, I, you know, that how something that for somebody like you who juggles so much and has such a big platform, something that to everyday people is the most simple and banal of tasks for you took on this very kind of Herculean task for you. Yeah. It's so interesting. I have with one Parker, when I was picking up Parker, which was, you know, 25 years ago, he, um, I would get there a half an hour early so I could park in the one spot that was easy to get out of. So I wouldn't be caught in the chaos of the, all the cars in the line. And now with Dakota, who's eight, who hopefully is my last child, um, I, uh, get there early to drop her off and I get there early to pick her up. So she sometimes doesn't like that because she has to leave the classroom early. Yeah. If I'm too early. So she tries to tell me, be number three or number four. <laughs> don't be number one Isn't it amazing or number how kids two. Just, they just want to be, they don't want to stand out in any way. They just, exactly. They you talk about the first time you met Bruce and he was just kind of a shy guy playing guitar. You guys kind of hit it off. Talk to me about, I mean, you were in your teens. Talk to me about that first meeting. Yeah, we, we, um, you know, um, I talk about this in, in, in more detail, but but basically there were no bands in America at the time. Uh, you know, February eighth, nineteen sixty four, there were no bands. I mean, I mean, if you went to a high school dance, there would be a band, but there would be an instrumental band. You know, uh, February 9th, nineteen sixty four, a group called the Beatles played a variety show called Ed Sullivan, which the whole family used to watch and, and the entire entire country watched. And the next day, February 10th, everybody had a band in the garage. I mean, it was a, an amazing transformation because uh, the, 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 the Beatles introduced the idea of being in a band. It was a whole new kind of idea. You know, we had you know, a lot of individuals in those days, you know, in the 50s, you know, Chuck Berry and Little Richard and those guys. And then we had doo-wop groups, harmony groups. But there weren't that many bands who sang and played, you know. And um, so uh, everybody had a band in the garage. Uh, most of them uh, mercifully stayed there, but uh, about a dozen of us got out into into a, like a circuit, and I and I had my band, The Source, and, and Bruce had his band, The Castiles, and there you know there were probably eight or ten other bands that you'd run into, and so you were you were automatically friends just just from being in a rock and roll band, which was a weird thing to do still uh, in in the sixties. You know, it wasn't really a legitimate uh, business yet until the seventies. So, um, you know, it was kind of a freaky thing to, to do. So you were immediately friends. And like I, like I, like I used to say, you know, if you, were, if you were in a band, you were friends. If you had long hair, you were friends. And if you had long hair and were in a band, you were best friends. Right. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and, that, <laughs> and that was our story. We just kind of 
we kind of hit it off. And um, he was the only other guy I ever met, you know, at the time, and maybe maybe to this day, uh, who felt that the same way I, as I did about rock and roll, that rock and roll was everything, you know? It wasn't just a, a, a hobby. It wasn't just a, something you did on the weekend or, or, you know, something like that just for fun. It was, it was everything. It became my religion and, and, uh, and you know, and it was something very special. You know, to that point, I'm going to read a quote from Bruce and from you, a quote from him. He's not the only one, nor the oldest, nor the richest, but little Stevie Van Zandt might currently be the planet's most charismatic, dedicated, invisible crusader, scraping to preserve the dirty purity of rock and roll. And quote from you, I know it sounds a bit silly, but I do believe rock and roll can change the world. It's about bands, and that suggests to me brotherhood, family, friendship, and community. So, kind of, it is, it is everything to you. Yeah, yeah. You guys always look, I've seen so many shows, you guys always look like you're having such a good time out there. Yeah, I'm friendly with, with John Bon Jovi, and I, I've asked him this many times. You're, you're doing, obviously, the shows are a little different every night. The, the sets are a little different. But how... <laughs> Are you playing a rock star up there? Are you having, are you thinking about your, what the dry cleaning you have to pick up? Because it's a job. I, I mean, I know you're an artist, but it's repetitive and you're doing it, you know, night after night after night. Are you, for when you're in the audience, it's this special thing. Do you get lost the same way or are you, take me through Stevie up on stage. What's going on in you? I, I mean, I, I always want to get, you guys are playing in front of 20,000 or 50,000 people and you're, uh, you know, a handful of people. What's going on in your mind when you're up there? Uh, you know, a couple of things. Uh, first of all, the minute you walk on stage, it's just like when you were 16 or, or 26 or 36. I mean, you, you know, it's always new again. I, I have a theory that, that I, I, think, I think our brains have a limiter on them that don't really remember our... our our highest, you know, our, our most uh, ecstatic moments or, or our most depressed moments. I, I think we actually have a limiter that limits our, our ability to actually remember those highs and lows, you know, to keep us kind of stable. And so every time you walk on stage and you hear that roar, it, it's new again, you know, and, and your, your adrenaline immediately, you know, goes to work and, and, you're, and you're 16 or you're 26 or whatever again. So you, you go on stage fully intending to do the best show anyone's ever seen, okay? And that's never changed. Um, at the same time, um, I'm kinda, I kind of got the front row seat of, 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 of one of the great shows on earth. So I'm enjoying the show yeah. as much as anybody, really, you know? Uh, and, 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 you know so half your, half your mind is sort of enjoying the show, and half of your mind is, sort of, is kind of giving, giving a show. But um, it's all very natural. I mean, when you've been on stage as long as, as we have, yeah. you know, it's, it's, I feel more comfortable on stage than off. Yeah. You know what I mean? Uh, you know, that, that's really your comfort zone. Uh, and, uh, and so, so you know, you're, you're, are you acting? Uh, you know, we're all acting all the time, I think. You yeah. know, whatever, you know, we're all playing we all parts, have a, yeah. a, million, a million personalities. And, you know, we, we are who, whoever's most appropriate at that moment, I think, is, is who we become. All we can do is try and realize our potential, and uh, you know whatever whatever you whatever you're doing that day. I mean, I, I tell people when I when I do these master classes on, on on songwriting or whatever, I say you know the thing to do is write with purpose. 
Yeah. You know, and in fact, live with purpose. Uh, you know, and I say that uh, because I hate wasting time. And that's the one thing I, I really hate more than anything. I always feel like I'm behind already because I started so late in life. You yeah. know, I didn't even, you know, realize I was an artist until in my 30s. You know, I didn't I, I didn't start acting until I was in my 40s. You know, so I'm, I, I was very late to the game. So I'm always feeling like I'm catching up. And, yeah. and I hate the concept of wasting time. So I'm like, make sure, you know, live with purpose, write with purpose. You know, uh, you know, make it count. Make it count. I hope you enjoyed today's Best Of show. I uh, hope you're having a great holiday. When we come back, we're going to be releasing a, a really important show, interview with uh, police officer Michael Fanone. Uh, he was, of course, the p- police officer that almost lost his life on January 6th, defending the Capitol. Uh, and we're going to do it on the anniversary of that on January 6th. So you'll hear that interview, a very important historical interview. And I hope everybody's having a great holiday. I'll see you guys next year. Hi, this is Jim Jeffries. I have a podcast out called I Don't Know About That. Each episode is a different subject. We bring an expert on and I say everything I think I know about that subject. And then they correct me. Join in, listen to the podcast. You'll have a laugh and you might learn something. Follow, rate and review. I Don't Know About That with Jim Jeffries. Now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to listen. You can also catch video releases each week on YouTube.